All right. How's everyone doing this morning? All right. It's been a wonderful time together worshiping so far, and we're going to continue in God's Word right now. Have you ever felt like life is just a couple of steps ahead of you? Anybody? You ever felt like you're trying to catch up, but however hard you try, you just can't? The bills keep piling up. Time moves faster than you can move. People are moving faster on the train every day. You're getting run over. The older you get, the slower you move. Are you with me? So what we've been doing these last couple of weeks is a series called Blink. Because if you blink, you might just miss the very life that you're trying to live. And part of that feeling of trying to catch up actually comes from our own minds. It's part of the way our brain works. If the human brain were actually a computer, it could perform 38,000 trillion operations per second. Just give you a perspective on how amazing that is. The world's most powerful supercomputer can only manage 0.002% of that. Your brains are powerful. And your brains are moving. And right now, even as we start into the lesson, you're thinking about what you ate for breakfast. You're thinking about what you want for lunch. You're thinking about who you're going to hang out with later. You're thinking about how the person smells next to you. I'm sure they smell great. You're thinking about the toothpaste you use. You're thinking about what's going to happen at work tomorrow. You're thinking about the job. You're thinking about your family. You're thinking about the text message you got this morning. You're thinking about all the emails you missed. Are you with me here? Your mind starts moving trillions of thoughts per second. And so what we need to do and what we've been trying to do these last few weeks is to focus. You know, we come to church together especially like this on a Sunday, it is a time to focus. It's a time to throw off all that hinders, all that distracts, all of that other stuff, and to focus in on what Jesus is trying to do with our lives. Sometimes it's hard. Well, it's hard all the time. Who are we kidding? But here is a sacred opportunity for us to tie in to what God has in store for us. In Hebrews Chapter 12 and verse 2, uh, we're not, not going to go there now, but we've been this, referencing this passage as our real focus for the whole series called Blink. And we're fixing our mind's eye on Jesus. You know, just like someone who's pulling a bow and arrow needs to have a target, we have our target, Jesus, for life. And if we don't focus on something, we're not going to hit anything. Now, we might not hit Jesus every time, in the sense that we're trying to aim to imitate his life. But if he's a target, we're aiming at something, and chances are you're going to get closer and closer to what you're aiming for. Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Our study has been in the Gospel of Luke. As we've been moving through this series, it's a six-parter. This is part four. Uh, Part one, we talked about Jesus uh, and going to his hometown. Dealing with the people-pleasing of human nature. We called it talk of the town and how we can be tempted to fall in to the people-pleasing traps. Uh, Part two, we asked a question, a profound question that was asked to Jesus. Are you willing? 
Jesus was, and we asked ourselves, are we willing to follow Jesus through the challenges of the cost of discipleship? Part three last week was about faithful friendships. We saw the four men care so much about their crippled friend that they dug a hole through the roof of a house to let him in to Jesus. And we asked ourselves, do we have friends? And are we that friend that bring our friends to Jesus? Today we talk about unified diversity. How does Jesus change the world with this crazy cast of characters? Let's meet him in Luke chapter 6, verse 12. You guys there? It reads, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. And he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them and stood on a level place. Let's stop there for now. We're going to break this text down, and there's a lot of lessons to be learned in this little paragraph. And probably if you're like me, been around church for a while reading the Bible, uh, you've read this many times and uh, went on to the next thing. All right, he picked the 12. I see the names. I'm familiar. Uh, we've got different songs to help us memorize what the names are. Uh, if you don't, there's a class on the seventh floor right now that could teach you. Um, but we, we know this. We know that there's a few guys that came into Jesus' inner circle, and then Jesus worked with them, and we move right along in the Gospels. But there's some lessons to be learned in here about unified diversity. You guys ready? Now, I don't have time to get into verse 12 because Jesus does what before he makes this big decision? He prays. Does he just pray? He prays all night. He prays all night. So I don't have time to get into uh, how our prayer life is and are we making decisions with prayer as a precedent before we make decisions? I don't have time to get into that today. Amen? I don't have time to get into verse 13, which says that he called his disciples to him. In Mark's version, it says, called to him those he wanted. So I have time to get into a lot of encouragement about how amazing it is that if you're in the room, that that means that Jesus wants you. That he made a decision to choose you and to train you. Whether you're at the beginning of that journey or near the end, Jesus wants you. That's why you're here. I don't have time to get into it today. But verse 14 through 16 names the twelve. We got J&J, the Sons of Thunder, the fishermen. We got Bart, who some of the uh, gospel writers called Nathaniel, who's really, when you do the research, like a bigot from Cana, bad-mouthing Nazareth. And when Jesus gets to him, he says, man, there is no deceit in this guy. It's kind of like he's a New Yorker, right? They will speak their minds. They will tell you what they believe is true. And they don't really care what you think. We got Matthew. We know what his profession was, right? Levi the tax collector, right? And we have Simon, who was a zealot. Just a few of these cast of characters. You got guys on all perspectives of the professional world, uh, different political persuasions, different social strata. And it's just so interesting to start to think about why 
God put these particular 12 together. I want to zero in on a couple of them more specifically, the tax collector and the zealot. We did a lesson recently, a few weeks ago, about Matthew, the tax collector. We learned a lot. Uh, by way of review, the tax collector, or another way of a word they would use back then, was a publican. Not a republican, just a publican. And this publican would get paid for getting the taxes from the people. In this case, uh, from the Jewish people and giving it to Rome. They brought franchises from the Roman Empire. And the Roman emperor would give them legal authority to do whatever the tax collector wanted to do to get that money. They would keep a commission on what they collected and give the percentage that they needed to to Rome. So if they squeeze more money out, they get more in their pocket. Rome gets more. Rome is happy. They're happy. They use force often to squeeze the cash out of people, even people that didn't have much. And the tax publican was bad enough, but to be a Jewish a Jewish publican, a Jewish tax collector, taking money from your own people and giving it to your oppressors, well, that was something entirely different. A Jewish publican was not considered a Jewish brother. They were excommunicated from Judaism. They were banned from the synagogue. They were treated like a Gentile pagan. They were a traitor to the nation, a social pariah, and one commentator says, the rankest of the rank. On a social totem pole in a Jewish mind, you'd have professions like dung collector, prostitute, and at the very bottom of the list would be tax collector. That's on one side, Matthew, representing the publicans of his time. And then another guy, Simon, the zealot, well, what's he all about? Well, zealots was a militaristic group of defenders of the national life and law of the Jewish nation, of the Jewish people. It was a movement that began around 6 AD. And basically Rome, specifically the reason how it started, you're going to love this, Rome put a new tax on the Jews. So for these Jews, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. They couldn't take it anymore. They couldn't take the oppression of the Roman Empire. And they decided to take matters in their own hands. And so they got violent. They created terror cells, uh, guerrilla warfare, and started taking out Roman officials, assassinating them on the street. And eventually, some of them were nicknamed the Sicarii, which is a name for a short dagger that they would conceal in their cloak or down in their pants. And so that at any time they saw a Roman official in an alleyway or in a road where they were close enough, they would take out that concealed dagger and execute them on the spot. They also reserved the right to call out, punish and even sometimes execute Jews who had sold out to the Roman Empire. So let's come up with a plan to change the whole world. But first, we need to start with 12 people that are so synergistically unified, so cohesive, they can finish each other's sentences. They come from the same area. They have the same convictions. We need that group of 12 people to change the world. So Jesus, in his brilliance and genius, puts a tax collector and a zealot in the room together. Why are these guys in the same room? Well, let me ask you another question. Why are you guys in the same room?
I'm not saying anyone's a publican or a Sakari. Hope you're not carrying. The point is this. God puts us together to prove a point. That unity among people as broken as we are is possible in his kingdom. That's what he does. Who do we have in this room? Older, richer, younger, poorer, right, left, all colors of the rainbow, south, west, east, north, from another nation, immigrants, natives, college educated, street educated. Got the whole gambit right here. 25 years ago, James Warren was in the streets of New York. I don't know what he was doing, rapping, other things, all kinds of things. I believe tomorrow he's celebrating another birthday in the kingdom of God. We appreciate him so much. And you add that to the crew, rappers, Wall Street, teachers, parents, real estate agents, construction workers, cab drivers, therapists, trainers, singers, dancers, people that watch Cosby, people that will never watch Cosby, people that watch Friends, people that watch Jeopardy, people that don't watch TV, people that brought their lunch today, people that are going to go out for their lunch today, people that won't eat lunch today, got Bible experts, got people that never open a Bible. It is all right here. It's awesome. We celebrate diversity, unified diversity. Now, why are these people in the same room? It's obvious. God's proving that harmony is possible where there is disharmony. Unified diversity. You know, the world every now and then gets a little glimpse of this, even though we're spoiled in God's kingdom and be able to see this so much. Uh, We see things like this. And I I love to look at sports for analogies. You look at a guy like Manute Bull, over seven feet tall, seven seven, I believe. Muggsy Bogues, I think he was five foot three. Can I get an amen on that? No? Five one, five three. All the five threeers are like, that's right. Teammates, friends, you understand this idea. It's not good enough that they're just on the same team, but that they play well together. I find it interesting when I look through uh, sports history, I find teams that are seemingly unlikely champions. Uh, This is the Dallas Mavericks. Uh, They've only won one, as far as I know, uh, in 2011. There was 18 to 1 odds going in uh, to the playoffs that they would have a chance to win. Uh, They never really played great defense at the time, for those that watch basketball. There were a hodgepodge of players going up against none less than the Miami Heat. LeBron, Wade, and Bosh, the triple threat. Guys on the Mavericks were speaking French, Spanish, German, English, and Serbian to each other, trying to figure out how to communicate. Uh, They also went down in the series two games to one. They had only won one, and the Heat had won two. All the odds were in the Heat's favor. They had home court advantage. And then they won every single game. They beat the Heat four games to two. Became the first team in NBA history in the finals format to come back like that and win. And on top of all that, you think, okay, who's their inspiring leader? Is it someone like Michael Jordan with his charisma and leadership abilities? Is it LeBron, just a force of nature to be reckoned with? Is it Shaquille O'Neal and all of his power? And it's this guy. (laughs) Dirk Nowitzki. Muttering in German and shooting threes from 35 feet away. But they won. Unified diversity. There's a woman named Hope, an Italian girl from a broken home in Washington. Another woman named Abby, someone from Rochester, the youngest of seven kids. She's six foot, 180 pounds. Great athlete. There's Amy, a Cuban girl that went to USC. What do they have in common? What do they have in common? Well, 
They just happen to be one of the best soccer teams to ever walk on the planet. Women's soccer, they destroyed, uh, won many World Cups together, and perhaps, as argued, one of the greatest ever. What do they have in common? When they get on that field, they sync up. They play well together. Now, we have a head start, like I mentioned. We have a perspective from Jesus about unified diversity. But let me say this, and hear me clearly. It's not good enough to be diverse. We have to be unified. The two have to go together, right? It's one thing to show up. And if you were to take a statistic or a percentage, oh yeah, a lot of different backgrounds, races, colors are represented. Okay, but are we unified? We all have to fight hard to drop the old baggage to be unified. Whatever that baggage may look like. You know, I'm, I'm so blessed to have a partner in crime here in the ministry named Al Baker. Al and I, we have an amazing relationship. We are opposites in so many ways. But when we get on the field, we sync up. I mean, Al will show up to our times together during the week, suited and booted. I mean, he's in the finance world, mergers and acquisitions. I show up in my skinny jeans and my ponytail. All right. We're different. We're different in many ways. He's from Chicago. I grew up in upstate New York. If you hadn't noticed. He's black. I'm white. He's a little older. I'm a little younger, but not by much. It's okay. I'm not going to out him on that. He's an engineer. I'm more of an artist. He's in the boomer generation. I'm in the Gen X. He's a little bit more conservative. I'm a little bit more progressive. He's a little bit more direct. I'm probably a little bit more diplomatic. He's from Stanford. I went to USC. <laughs> Al shared last week about faithful friendships. I count Al as one of my dearest, closest friends. And we were fast friends. From the moment we went, we met, we were just syncing up spiritually. Why? Because it was the bond of Christ. It's not like we could go back and share all these stories. Oh yeah, I did that too. Or I shared that experience. We had very different experiences, but Jesus bonds us together. There's an amazing couple in our ministry named Josh and Andrea. And you know, Josh Rothberg, powerful, packs a punch in that small body. He's amazing. And uh, his girlfriend, Andrea, equally packs a power punch in a, a small vessel. And uh, they're amazing. I think they win the award for cutest couple and all that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, recently, just last week, uh, or a week and a half ago, Andrea moved from Ohio to New York. All right, it was a big deal for her and her family. We're very blessed to have her. And they've been dating for a while, and uh, their relationship's been going. And, and uh, so she decided to move out. And, you know, Josh said, okay, New York can be a little bit crazy. I want to come out to Ohio and help you to uh, make the transition. And I'll help you get the truck and the moving and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so he started to arrange it. So he called his four friends. All right. Four of his closest. Four that he's really built with here in the church. They're going to go out to Ohio together. Meet the family. Put all the stuff in the truck and bring this family's daughter, precious daughter, away from home and into New York. 
And when they showed up on the doorstep and came in the living room, what did they look like? Well, those are Josh's four friends. Why are you laughing? I'm just showing his four friends. What's the deal? Yes! And mom and dad answered the door expecting whatever they expected and then went, hello! <laughs> Later, we got a chance to catch up to Andrew. Hey, how was it for your family? Was that an abrupt uh, introduction to the church in New York? And it was like, my parents were blown away by the way these guys came to serve. Hundreds of miles driving back and forth till little old me moved to New York. And I thought that was an incredible example of unified diversity. It's awesome. And we celebrate it. I want to show you some scriptures to help us to gain a deeper conviction about what we need to do with unified diversity. I'll show them on the screen, but if you want to look at them with me, you can open to Psalm 133 in verse 1. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. God's people living together in unity. Lately, i got to challenge the Christians. I've been hearing way too much about conflict in the households. Brothers and sisters living together. One of the most amazing experiences of my life, living with five other brothers in the church. Learned so much about life. Learned so much about character, about responsibility. And I got to say, it prepared me to be in a Christian marriage. In so many different ways. Humility, communication, working together. And yet I'm hearing these stories about conflict in the households that are not being reconciled. Brothers and sisters saying, you know what? It's not working out. I'm just going to move out. Unable to figure out with the Bible, with brothers and sisters around us, with scriptures like Matthew 18 that give us a plan to work things out. And I'm not talking about doctrinal differences. I'm talking about cleaning things up in the room. Simple stuff. And let me just throw this out. If you do plan on getting married someday, these are some of the lessons you got to learn now. If not, these are some of the lessons you got to learn now. Because it's about being a disciple, denying ourselves, carrying our cross, doing the little things to encourage each other. That's unified diversity. Colossians chapter 3, verse 14, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. You know, sometimes we like to think that we're the peacemaker, but really what we imagine is we're more of an enforcer. So we say, oh, problems in the household? Oh, I'll take that out. Oh, I got scriptures. I got ammunition. I'm going to come in there guns blazing. I'm ready to rebuke somebody. What is it that binds everyone together in perfect unity? It's love. Sometimes we forget conveniently about that whole side. Love and truth. You got the truth side on straight. And some of us are on the other side. We're all about the love. No truth. We got to find that Jesus balance. That's what brings us unified diversity. Ephesians 4, in verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The thing that sticks out to me in this passage is every effort. You know, sometimes we make effort. Oh, I tried. 
Hey, have you guys had a chance to work out your differences? Oh, I tried. Oh, we got together. Really? How many times? Well, we got together once and it didn't work out. All right, well, we got together twice and it didn't work out. And then there's this weird number ringing in my head. Seven times 77. It's a weird number. I don't know where I get it. Oh, yeah, Jesus. Every effort means I keep going back till it's resolved. Every effort. Not 80% effort. Not 90%. 100% effort. Everything in my power. Because the church represents God. And I am not going to risk slandering God as his representative because I'm not willing to make every effort possible to get right with my brothers and sisters. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12. There's a little heading right before it. It says unity and diversity in the body. I think an apt description of this whole section of text in the Bible. It says just as a body, the one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ. New Yorkers can be independent. Is that right? And sometimes we can imagine that although we consider ourselves part of the body of Christ, a member of the body of Christ, I don't know whether you're a toe or a finger or an eye or an earlobe, whatever you are, God has chosen you. We didn't have time to do that earlier, but you're in the room where it happens. You're part of that body if you are a disciple. So what does that mean? Well, that means that you have an accountability, a connection to the other moving parts in the body of Christ. But because of that independent nature that sometimes we were raised to have, we say, well, I got one foot in the body and then I'm also my own person. Meaning not that I have an independent nature and I can get on the subway by myself. I get that. But I'm talking about being that off on my own, isolated. I know we all live on an island, but I mean spiritually on an island. No, I don't need input. No, I don't need to be accountable. No, I don't need to talk to you about what I'm going through. I'm my own guy. I'm my own gal. And I do what I want. But then on Sunday, I'm part of the body of Christ. Just can't have it both ways. You know what gangrene is, right? Part of the body gets infected with a disease. The Bible says that gangrene could be like sin. And sin creeps up. Starts small, gets big. Birth to death. James 1. Starts small, comes in the back door. I start struggling with something small. And then it turns into an infection. And all of a sudden, my toe is infected. And what do I do? Well, the body has to make a decision. We have to make a decision. Do we cut it off? Or else it'll infect the rest of the body? Or is there a chance it can be healed? I pray that all of us who might have allowed a sin in our lives, and maybe the infection is growing, I pray that we're not past healing point. I believe if you're here then there's hope for you. There's hope in Scripture. But at some level, and Hebrews 10 reminds us of this, if we deliberately keep on sinning, no sacrifice for sins is left. And that's a line that God draws. Not me. One, many parts, but we all work together. Let me get a little bit more specific into some of the gaps that I think we need to bridge in our fellowship of churches. Amen? We talk a little bit about the gender gap, and I threw out a couple of references to passage, passages that you can write down. I won't get to all of them. You know, there's a gender gap in our world, and I believe also can creep into the church where men and women do not have a healthy relationship with one another. You know, Jesus cares for women. 
regardless of circumstance, whether bleeding or begging or sick or victim or rich or poor or Jew or Gentile, Jesus has a respectful, healthy, appropriate, and pure relationship with women. And the women that are counted as disciples amongst Jesus' few, like Mary, have an incredibly powerful voice in that young movement. And there's a respect. In Luke chapter 8, you can read in the first few verses about how Jesus' ministry was funded primarily by a few women. These women were making bank back in the day. They were given a healthy contribution. They didn't let the plate pass, and they were named in the Gospels for funding that first movement of Jesus. Later, Paul writes that even a wife and a husband should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In many ways, Jesus toppled the social tradition of the time, the political tradition of the time, and in a Jewish, very patriarchal-dominated society, said, no, women can follow this rabbi. Women can have equal voice in this church, and they will. How are we doing today on the gender gap? Is there a respect that you have with the opposite sex? Is there a healthy, appropriate, and pure relationship with one another? These are questions only you and God can answer. I beg of you to go back and challenge yourself. How am I doing in this way? How can I grow to be more like Jesus? The race gap. Let's talk about it. Red and yellow, black and white. They are what? There you go. You know that one. Now some of us go, whoa. I don't even want to get into that. You, you we're starting to label with race colors and all that. I get it. Okay, let's just go to Jesus. What did Jesus do? Jesus was with the Samaritan, the Gentile, the Roman, the Jew. He defied racial category. Philip studies with and baptizes an Ethiopian, who then it seems becomes the lead church planter in Africa and spreads the word there. When these races weren't going anywhere near each other, 2,000 years ago, the Christians defied that gap. They bridge it with no problem at all. Paul writes about it in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. says there's no Gentile, no Jew, no circumcised, no uncircumcised, no barbarian, no Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. I had to look up Scythian. What's a Scythian? It's an ancient nomad from modern-day Iran. Thought that was appropriate these days? Jesus goes outside. Paul goes outside. The Christians of the first century go outside their tribe, their comfort zone, political boundary, social boundary, racial boundary, and they defied the racial gap. That's our example. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. once said, it's appalling that the most segregated hour of Christian America is at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. I wonder what he's talking about. Harlem goes, well, we meet for church at 10, so I don't think we're... <laughs> we went 11 today. Recent research statistics and surveys of thousands of churchgoers find that 86% of American churches have one predominant race. And two-thirds of the congregants asked are totally fine with the way it is. Now, our fellowship has to defy this statistic. There cannot be racial divisions among us. And it's not enough to be diverse. We've got to be unified. Got to check your crew. Got to check out who you're listening to, who you're sitting with. 
If it's not mixed, it's time to mix it up. Because Jesus did. Age gap. Age gap. The younger and the older. There's great scriptures in Acts chapter 2. It says, your sons and daughters are going to prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. There are spiritual gifts that all of us bring to the table. Younger or older. In 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, it gives us instructions for how to treat one another younger and older. And in 1 Peter 5, 5, it also gives us instructions about how to respect one another. And the words that Peter uses, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Some of us get into our crew of peers and we forget about unified diversity. We forget about what we can learn from the older and from the younger, from the middle, wherever you may be. There's a time and a place to do it, but it won't happen by itself. You've got to initiate time with one another. Finally, the financial gap. Rich and poor. You know, from fishermen to tax collectors to centurions to the Sanhedrin, Jesus was with everyone. In Acts 2, they talk about giving to anyone as they had need. The Macedonians in 2 Corinthians 8 talk about we refuse to be passed over. Even though we're poor, we're going to give. It was their privilege to give. And, you know, we do hope uh, worldwide. We support charities, benevolence, contribution. The question for us, though, is our heart there to bridge that gap? What do I mean? Well, that someone can walk into this room and see all the different sides of the wealth coin. Of course, they're only viewing it on a first impression, but sometimes that's all we get. But that they can see that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. One day I was speaking from this very stage, and I looked out, and I've been reaching out to a couple of guys. One was a millionaire, and one was homeless at the time. And they didn't know each other, and and yet somehow I looked out, and they were sitting next to each other. And I thought, there it is. I think that's what Jesus would have wanted. That there isn't a difference. That they're passing the communion to one another and going back and forth. And it's all right. That it doesn't have to matter. You know, special contribution is coming up in a couple of months. And for us in the church here, we get excited about being able to give to our fellow churches around the world, in the Caribbean, in Africa, all over New York, here. We love to invest in the mission of the gospel. And that comes up a special time for us once a year to give. Are you ready to bridge the gap there? Wherever you are on the wealth spectrum. Of course, anyone says they're not rich. I mean, even if we're rich, we go, oh, I'm not rich. You can ask a billionaire. They go, no, I'm not rich. So it's all perspective, right? But you get rid of the labels for a minute. Are we ready to give? Wherever we're at in life. You know, our goal is to be able to give $365 per person. Right, a dollar a day that we've saved up to be able to give with our hearts, not under compulsion, but to be able to give so that these churches could spread the word. And you know, some will struggle to even give that much. It's a fact. Some, it's a no-brainer. They can give a lot more. But in the end, if we all do our part, and we have seen this in several years, the New York Church, church has unified diversity, and we're able to give and meet our goal. And I pray it's the same this year. Not because we're looking over our shoulder and seeing what other people are doing. It's because we are giving because we know it's right. Let me close out. This is a picture of our ministry in Manhattan on a Wednesday night. And like if I were to take a picture right now 
This reminds us of who we are. We're all mixed up. We're a hodgepodge of crazy sinners that have grace from God, and that's why we're able to walk through the door. But we have to deliberately fight for a unified diversity. I'll close out with two thoughts. Because Jesus brought it, and then he bought it. John 17, verse 20, Jesus prays for those who believe in him through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Jesus says, I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. See, Jesus brought it. They wouldn't have been unified on their own. The tax collector and the zealot would not have found fellowship or unity with one another on their own. And I dare say that a lot of us would not have found fellowship and unity on our own. But it's Jesus that does it. Jesus brings us together. Amen? And he's going to have to continue to do it. But not only that. On the earth, he brought it. But then he died for our sins and resurrected on the third day. He bought that unity with his very life. In 1 Corinthians 7.23, it reminds us that we were bought at a price. You know, as the singers come back on, and we're going to close out this service in just a minute. I want to remind you that at the end of the passage in Luke chapter 6, what happens after he chooses the twelve is that he comes down to a level place with his guys. Now, maybe I'm reading too much into it, and maybe it's not meant to be metaphor. Maybe he literally just was like on an elevated hill and came down to be with the guys. But I see it as Jesus saying, now we're all on equal level playing field together. We're going to do this together. And even me, I am the son of God. If you look at Philippians chapter 2, he did not consider equality with God something that he could grasp. He became a man, he became low, he became humble to model for us what it means to have unified diversity. Let's all stand together and sing one final song as a unified church and fight for this at all costs. Amen.